Hello and welcome to the XX LA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest is Ira Baptiwale, Vice President of Sustainability at HMC Architects, mother of three, board member of Designing Futures Foundation, and chair of USGBC Inland Empire, and active also with USGBC LA. Ira was nominated to be a guest on the show by her coworker. And what was really cool about this was that even though I had never met Ira, as I started researching her in order to prepare for our interview, I realized that we had a lot of really awesome people in common. So when I asked them what they thought about Ira, her coworkers said, quote, she is genuinely passionate, wonderful, and a champion of sustainability. After talking with her, I couldn't agree more. Without further ado, here's our conversation recorded virtually during the first week of January. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing? Well, it's been, sheesh, it's just been so tremendous, right? Like just this, this first week of the new year, it's kind of like, you know, some weird dystopian dream, but yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if I don't turn on the news, things are great. <laughs> <laughs> I totally get that. I feel the same way. Like if I keep the news on for too long, it affects my whole day, like everything. It's a lot to take in. I mean, just this year alone, I think we've seen more events in our one year of 2020, um, then we have it probably maybe for for many of us in our entire lives. Um, It's been really definitive in a lot of different ways. It's definitely been a year of introspection, right? So hopefully 21 will be a year of of actual doing um, based off of all that introspection. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I do think that we've all been forced to look inward. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in that way, it's been, it's been okay. Like, I feel like I've worked on myself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I think there have been definitely these silver linings um, that I'm very thankful for. And it's opened up a lot of conversations, you know, with my family, with my kids in particular, uh, with my friends, you get a really strong sense of community if you're lucky, you know? That's all been wonderful. And I, I, I wouldn't have gotten that pre-COVID, you know, or uh, pre-George Floyd or pre-election. You know, I think a lot of those, those moments came out because of all these tumultuous events. So, yes, but now it's really about working off of what we've learned to do something that will have um, a better outcome. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a better person to be talking to at this point (laughs) in terms of, I mean, you're, you're vice president of sustainability at HMC and we're just seeing the importance of really taking climate change seriously and um, the importance of our communities um, and really building the, not just the climate sustainability, but the community Mm -hmm. aspect of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, having a strong network and a strong tie um, in neighborhoods and just in cities, of course, and states, 
is so important to really make sustainability um, happen in any significant way. And you're absolutely right. I think that, um, again, like all these different events have really fortified at least my understanding that having that type of resilient network is so important to really make sustainability um, meaningful. At HMZ, um, we've we've really taken that to heart. I, I think I might have shared with you, we actually drafted our own climate action plan for the firm. Oh. Yeah. And um, it was it was a really a great opportunity for us to understand, you know, how we're designing and what type of impact that has on our climate and our shared global um, community, but also how we're operating, you know, and pre-COVID, it was, I guess, a little bit easier to um, ascertain and, and calculate, let's say, how we're operating, right? Like, how are we getting to work? How are we working in our offices? How much water and energy we're using? Now it's quite different. The landscape's quite different. We're all in different places. But still, this climate action plan is really about not just understanding the design work that we do and the impact that has, but how we work and how we live and those types of work styles and lifestyles that we have and how those two elements also impact our global climate, um, which is really interesting to me. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like you developed it pre-COVID, right? We did. We did. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks at, you know, um, several resolutions ranging from energy and water and waste to healthy materials, transportation, um, operations. Uh, yeah, and it didn't take into consideration pandemics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it brought to light, this pandemic rather, brought to light the importance of all those different things, you know. Um, and for example, you know, I'm sure you're experiencing this at home as well. Um, you're not having to drive to work, of course, right? Um, you're probably a little bit more aware of, anyways, how much waste is being produced, how much of that waste is being recycled, um, how much maybe water you're using, how much electricity you're using. So, in a lot of ways, it's it's real. It's become um, an opportunity for us to sort of realize how we live and how we work, and then maybe I don't know. Hopefully, we can take some of that insight and apply it to the way we design. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that came out of being stuck at home all the time is that since I have a little more uh, time to be able to do this, I um, started composting. (laughs) So good. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) In a way, you kind of have to, right? Because it's just, it's right in front of you and you can't just get rid of it. It doesn't just go away and dissipate into air. Like you want to do something about it. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, yeah, no, I tried to do that before and uh, failed because thing I didn't take care of it yes. regularly, so things got too smelly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and unsightly. I, I know, I know. Yeah, it's it's its own little, you know, um, it's its own little project. It doesn't it doesn't want to be left alone. It wants to be tended to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I hope you get a beautiful harvest out of it. Thanks. We'll see. <laughs> Um, (laughs) yeah, but I'm more interested. So I want to hear about this report. Like what were you, it it sounds like you're measuring both the work you're doing and the like work of just, uh, being a a company, like all the individuals within it. Um, what were you doing? What, 
what did you find that um, you were doing well? And where did you find like the biggest opportunities for improvement? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so honestly, it came about because we've been talking to our clients about reducing energy, reducing water use, um, preventing waste. Uh, And what we realized was, you know, you really can't preach to people about doing these things if you're not doing them yourselves, um, yourself. And so when we started to analyze how we were doing, uh, we realized like many firms, I think, that we weren't doing as well as we wanted to be. So in terms of energy, um, you're familiar with Architecture 2030. We're supposed to be at the 80% carbon reduction emission uh, rate. Um, as an industry, the AEC industry, we're nowhere near that mark. Um, architecture in general is is really um, you know creating a hole in a way that we then have to fill and um, HMC you know I think is is being really honest about how we're doing um, and reporting to AIA 2030 we're at about the 46 percent mark as is much of the industry um, and so that tells us you know you don't really know how you need to do or how much better you need to get unless you know where you stand. And so that was sort of the first, first step, understanding that we have much, much more work to do. Um, and what does that mean for us? I mean, it means, you know, personally, professionally, we have to push ourselves to do more and to get uncomfortable, you know, um, and to have those discussions with clients, um, with people who are in, um, positions of power where they have the ability to make important decisions. Um, We need to have those types of conversations more often with more people. Um, And so, yeah, that, that type of, that type of, again, introspection is so important. So um, that's definitely a place that we need to improve. Um, And it's probably the first place. Uh, California is definitely a leader when it comes to energy efficiency. We have really tall orders and huge goals when it comes to decreasing our energy use and decreasing our carbon footprint. Um, and, and that's great. Um, that's the first place that you want to look, but water of course, and waste are, are, I would say, um, equally important, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but this pandemic has just brought to light so many different things. The fact that we were so reactive to the crisis, right? And we didn't have enough planning strategies in place to really, um, to be better prepared for this. I think it's the same thing when it comes to climate change. You know, we know that they these events are happening. We know that they're happening faster and faster. Um, and we can no longer wait to react. We have to be proactive. We have to know that, you know, for example, Water is really cheap. I hear that so much. <laughs> um, it's so cheap, and yet it's such a precious resource. And we are just coming out of this drought um, in California um, and probably heading back into one, right? So even though it's inexpensive because we're purchasing so much of our water at, at an um, unsightly, inexpensive rate, what happens when it's not, you know? Um, and we need to really be better about that. So I know that, you know, for example, our firm, like many other firms, it's probably doing pretty good um, in terms of lead metrics when it comes to water, but what are we doing proactively to conserve water? 
um, how can we set up our communities so that they're more resilient in times of drought? I think that's something that I'm really interested in pushing. Cool. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it's a lot to chip away at, right? I know, but um, I just I feel like there's there's so much to be learned, and we've got to try. You know, it's really interesting. I've never heard of somebody having a position of vice president of sustainability. So I don't know if that's fairly common or if it's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like it's such an important factor in what we're doing that. Um, it makes sense to kind of have somebody, um, I don't know what the right word is, like a a guardian, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I, I would love to be known as a guardian. <laughs> well, I think, so we, it turns out we have a lot of people in common. And from every one of them, I've heard how awesome you are and how passionate you are about sustainability. So um I would say that they would feel like you're a guardian or an advocate. Oh my goodness. I mean, I know those people that you're talking about, so I also know how kind they are and they, they are um, kind enough to listen to me sort of get on my soapbox uh, a bit. So (laughs) I, I think that's very, very nice of them. I, I am, I'm very lucky. I feel to be in in a position like this, um, especially within this industry. And, you know, um, the position was really cultivated because HMC saw that I did have a passion. I did have a skill set. They wanted me to develop it into an actual career. And so they really helped me um, grow into this profession, into this specialty, if you will. I think I'm forever thankful for that because it just allows me to go to work every day and do something that I feel good about, that I think is fulfilling, something that I can talk to my kids about. You know, I don't know that everybody has that opportunity or is not aware of the fact that they have that opportunity, right? I think all of us, no matter what we do, have an opportunity to promote sustainability. And I think that's also part of my position, you know, bringing that to light is part of my job, Um, making sure that when I'm talking to an architect or when I'm talking to, (laughs) um, you know, uh, the head of administration, when I'm talking to a teacher, when I'm talking to a student, I feel like it's my job to sort of help them understand that they have a role to play in a sustainable future. Um, And design and buildings are just one aspect of that. It's really behavior. It's really lifestyle and work style that makes the most impact. Wow. So can you talk about that a little more? Because it sounds like uh, from all the the variety of people you just listed who you interface with. I'm just so curious about what your job, like what it looks like. Um, Cause it sounds like you're really advocating and talking with a lot of different constituents. Yeah. 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 You're right. Like it's almost as though you have several different client interfaces in a way. Right. Yeah. I mean um, within the firm, I would say my first client interface is really project teams. And so I see my role as really Um, being that of pushing these initiatives, helping implement the climate action plan into projects um, and helping project teams and designers specifically understand how they can take um, a climate action plan, which seems sort of like this sort of ambiguous manifesto that's shelved away somewhere. They can take that climate action plan and actually integrate it into their design. So I see that, that individual, the designer, let's say as my, my first client, if you will. And then I also see 
um, you know, whether we're working with a school or a university or a healthcare system, I see the administrators of all those different entities as my clients as well, helping them understand that, you know, saving energy is great. You know, you're going to save dollars annually, um, but giving back energy to the grid, being an energy hub for a neighborhood, wouldn't that be a much more aspirational endeavor? You know, can we start talking about these larger goals? Um, talking about to, to teachers about how they can use the building as a learning tool, as a living lab for their students and integrating that into the curriculum, wouldn't that be an aspirational endeavor? You know, those larger conversations that we're having, I think are so interesting to me. And I think also interesting to all those clients. Um, and then there are the people who actually use our buildings. So um, talking to them about what the building is doing for them, does it provide them with a sense of pride for their community, for their school, for their neighborhood? Because I feel like that's every bit as much a part of sustainability as is energy, waste, and water, you know? Yeah. Because if you feel proud of your space, you want to go to the space. If it gives you joy when you're in your space because there's lovely light coming in and you have a beautiful view and access to nature, you're going to feel better. You're going to do better work. We're going to take better care of your building probably. Mm -hmm. You're just more aware. And I think, you know, being able to understand all those different levels of intervention is is also part of my job. Yeah. Um, and I, I and I love it. And I love it. I love the human aspect of it, you know, that um, in the end, we're designing, I feel, for um, our families, you know, we're designing for not just our own children, we're designing for our family in terms of who we work with, um, our family in terms of who's in our neighborhoods. And I like to also include the environment in that family, you know, it's just, it's all part of one big ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I wonder, so when you're working with designers and the project team, um, like what are some examples of like, you know, d is there a collaborative sort of back and forth where you're like, you know, I think that you should integrate some shading here. Um, and then they kind of like come back to you. Like, how does that work? Yeah. It's different every time, Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wish it was like more formulaic in some ways. And in some ways I'm glad it's not because I like having it um, be dynamic, you know, and I like having revelations and conversations from both sides. Right. And I shouldn't say sides. I think we're all <laughs> part of the same um, unit and I can't be on every single project. It's just not possible. My colleague and I both share the same role and um, between the two of us, it's just, it's not humanly possible to do it all. So we definitely have to sort of pick and choose which projects we can be a part of. But we, when we are part of them, we sit down with our project teams, specifically with the designer, I guess, first and discuss, you know, what are our targets? What do we need to hit for our energy use intensity, for example, or EUI, given the building type? Um, and how can we get there? Can we look at orienting the building in such a way that we can optimize solar access? Um, can we thin the building down so we can get the daylight um, into the building further? Can we start to look at passive strategies that we ordinarily would not look at because we think that they're too difficult for the client or too expensive? Um, can we start to look at them earlier on? Um, you know, looking at um, 
for example, a solar chimney or a cool tower? Can we look at radiant floors? Can we look at natural ventilation? Which is like, it's so funny that it's a novel thing because it's the most efficient and most basic in a way primitive thing that you can possibly do in design. And yet because of a sundry, you know, myriad different reasons, it's always, you know, um, axed out of a project because it's not convenient, you know? Um, So I think having those conversations more often and uh, earlier on with my designer is, is really important. Um, And then, you know, coming back to them and, and I think providing them with, um, with resources. So for example, we were just talking the other day um, to some project teams about how um, they were being challenged by, I think, you know, the contractor, the cost estimator on the contractor's side about various sustainable or various strategies, you know, overhangs, glazing, um, things like that. And, you know, I, I told them that, Basically, if you had three justifications behind every single decision that you made, and if I could provide you with evidence, data that provides the contractor with an understanding of why those strategies are actually meaningful, useful, um, cost-saving, then you wouldn't have to have you wouldn't have to have that battle with them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think providing them with a resource uh, uh, such as that is so crucial. It makes the case to them. It makes the case to the client. It makes the case to the contractor that, yeah, this makes good sense. And, and here's why. So it's not just, you know, this felt right, or this looks nice, or the massing worked out for me because I did this overhang in such a way. It's because, no, we studied the exact solar orientation. We studied exactly how much solar radiation is going to hit the slab. We studied exactly how much daylight is going to come in, and it's going to improve thermal comfort improve occupant satisfaction with their space and save energy. That's a much meatier set of data to sink your teeth into. That's what I hope to provide to, to people I, I work with. And I think that that's a lovely thing when you're able to, to say that this brings beauty and it provides happiness and it's going to be energy efficient. I think that's that's a beautiful design right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of um, conversations I've had with students and people who are um, advising students about, um, you know, you can't just propose something to a client. You can't just propose a design because you want something like it. That's not how the real world works unless you're self-funded. You have to make an argument for why something is better and there could be a myriad of reasons, but you have to be able to communicate the why in order to convince someone. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that why is is different to everybody, right? Like mm-hmm. to some people, it is going to be about dollars saved. Mm-hmm. To other people, it's going to be about student success and how can you help support student success. And sometimes they don't see those sinuous connections between, you know, um, how, how the well-being of a student plays into their performance and then therefore plays into, um, uh, matriculation and, and them going on to get, a, a you know, a solid job, right? They don't see the connection of, of the built environment and that outcome, unless you bring it to the forefront, 
Um, and I think there are a lot of entities out there um, that are really pushing that that um, data. You know, um, there's the Well Building Institute that is much more holistic and is looking at, for example, what happens after the building has been built to really support the health and well-being of everybody inside the building. You know, I think as architects, um, it's easy for us to say, okay, we've designed this building. Here you go. Thank you very much. It's nice, nice to see you. Hope that we get to work with you again. Um, I think it's it's it behooves us to say now, okay, the project is done, but this isn't the end of our relationship. This is the beginning of our relationship. We're going to help you track the building's performance and occupant satisfaction for the long haul because we want to know how we're doing and we want to make sure that you guys are are satisfied and are doing well as well. Um, I think that's a much more meaningful relationship to have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that you had kind of mentioned earlier, and I want to circle back to because it was so interesting, um, is that at HMC, you kind of like created your own career there. Yeah. Um, and I want to hear more about like how that happened, especially um keeping in mind, you know, a younger uh, professional or student who's like, who's thinking to themselves, wow, that job sounds really cool. Like, how do I do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that question. Um, Because, you know, I think it's, it's something that I sort of didn't realize it was going to happen until it, it, it sort of, I looked back on it and I was like, oh, you know, I get it now. Um, I get why I am here um, doing this, this thing. And I think that, um, you know, I went to school, I got my bachelor's and my master's in architecture and then started working at HMC and I had wonderful mentors. I, um, I think I was very fortunate in that regard. Uh, and I, I um, had an immediate connection with all of them. Um, and they took, a sincere interest in my development. I think having that that mentorship is so crucial. But also, as a young professional, having the initiative um, and the wherewithal to just put yourself out there and say, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. I'm interested in sustainable design. I want to know how I can be a part of the conversation. Um, and these are the skills that I have, and this is what I want to develop. I think I was able to have those conversations very early on. And my mentors, they saw, again, like this passion, they wanted to help me develop. And so they constantly put me in um, opportunities where I could have conversations with project teams and clients. They allowed me to um, study and research things on the side and then bring them to the conversation for different projects. Um, and I think that was that was invaluable. And they also allowed me to sort of bring my personal experiences to the conversation too. And I think that was a really beautiful thing. They got to know me in a way that they understood that my heart was in this. Um, and um, I felt very comfortable, you know, immediately. Um, and it, it soon developed, you know, um, one thing led to another. I started as a designer, 
moved into a sustainable designer position, um, then moved into um, environmental analyst at one point, um, where I got really hard skills, you know, um, very technical skills, which was really valuable to me because that meant that I wasn't simply talking um, in theoretical terms, but I was actually able to apply things. And then I moved into VP and then I moved into VP of sustainability, um, which allowed me to be in a, a, a more of a, a role where I could bring others up. You know, I don't see my role as being at the top of that pyramid, you know, where I'm a leader telling everybody else what to do. I'm very much in the trenches. Um, and my hope is to really encourage people, young professionals, seasoned professionals. I want to help them understand how to implement sustainability strategies. Um, and I see my role as really supporting that effort as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to find out like when you discovered sustainability as a thing, like, <laughs> because, you know, some of us learn about it in school. Some of us may like have parents who are, you know, setting certain examples for us. Um, mm -hmm. but it's one of those things that, uh, makes a lot of sense, but you have to sort of be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I think for me, there was like a set of experiences throughout my life. I think that were especially definitive, um, that helped me sort of question in a healthy way, what I wanted to do. Um, and I think that helped me forge my path towards sustainable design. Um, when I was growing up and even into my 20s, I was always, I was going to India a fair bit um, to visit family. Um, and I remember one year in particular, I was 26 and um, I visited my parents' um, neighborhood. And that neighborhood was being... Um, supported by a local, a little, a family. Um, and that family basically, you know, ran errands for several homes in the neighborhood. Um, and I met the, the matriarch of the family um, when I visited one year. She was also 26. And um, she had five kids at 26, um, stopped going to school from fifth grade and lived in a metal shack that was probably... 50 square feet, 50, 70 square feet worth of space with her five children um, adjacent to the neighborhood. And I remember that visit was so unsettling for me to see, you know, we were both 26 years old, but had radically different lives. And honestly, probably, although I don't know where she is, I don't know where she is today, but I'm assuming we'll have radically different outcomes. Um, and I, I remember thinking at that time, you know, why doesn't, why is it this way that, you know, 86% of the population in India, for example, doesn't have access to clean water or safe shelter. And, um, that, that resonated with me, you know, being able to do something about that. It, it meant that I had to really be very, um, very clear with myself about what I wanted to do. And I, I began to question architecture, you know, for me, 
for, especially then at that moment, architecture seemed very indulgent. And I didn't want to simply design, I didn't want to just place make. I wanted to provide to society in a more meaningful way. So I definitely think that was one definitive moment for me. Um, having my kids, um, I think it's definitive in so many ways, right? Um, and when I had my first, uh, and I was you know, deciding whether or not I wanted to go back to work at all, I told myself I wasn't going to go back unless I was going to do something that meant um, crafting a better future for her and for generations beyond her. And so that's when I, I said to uh, my mentors at that time, I want to be um, specifically doing sustainable design because it's got to mean something to me professionally and personally, and it's got to mean something to people um, in my life, you know, and, and generations beyond me. So that was definitely definitive. And then this year, my goodness, I mean, how many things could have, could have happened that actually began to, um, you know, make you realize things? It, it, it all happened at once. And, you know, this, this intersection of the pandemic and climate change and social injustice, the people that we find, the communities that we find at that intersection are almost invariably the disenfranchised, the disadvantaged. Um, and that's not okay. I think that we have to do something about that. And I would say right now, I'm again beginning to question how I'm doing things, what I'm doing. Am I doing it enough? Am I not, am I not in the right place? Um, am I not, um, what else can I do basically? And so I'm wondering, um, even now, how can I begin to evolve um, in this position? And how can I begin to be a better steward to the environment and to society as a whole? Um, I think that is a, is a healthy thing. It's uncomfortable, but I think questioning what you're doing and testing yourself along the way is so important. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think I, I I just got chills <laughs> when you were talking about all of the reasons for you personally why you're doing what you're doing, and I I agree it's absolutely normal. I go through that as well, you know, questioning why am I doing what I'm doing um, because it. I, I guess everybody's motivated in different ways, but for me, I am highly motivated by sort of bigger picture like altruism mm -hmm. motivators, like it, it has to mean something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I, I relate to that completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, we have this, in this profession, we have this, I think, ability because of design thinking to think in multiple ways, you know, and there's not one specific answer for any one thing, you know, I, I think, you know, I said architecture is indulgent, um, but that was really in my perspective because I feel like I, I don't know that at that time I was designing in a way that was very conscientious. But I do think it is possible to design conscientiously and, and not be indulgent. You know, I think that there's just a certain um, skill set that you have to have to be able to do that. And for me, um, I felt like, well, my, my time was probably better spent focusing on these other sustainable aspects um, to make it meaningful. 
for me and for people I, I care about um, and society at large. But I think that architects as a whole um, have the ability to do this. You know, the very act of, of designing um, a space, um, a community space, for example, bringing again that pride and that joy to a community is meaningful. Um, and I think there's something to be said about that as well. Yeah. I mean, definitely to be an architect, I think is an act of optimism. Mm-hmm. And like when I was, I, I was recently talking with um, some kids about what it means to be an architect and, you know, what, what really it helps, I think, to talk about these things every once in a while, because it's so easy to forget the basics of just like an architect is someone who's really envisioning the future. Yeah. We're planning for a future. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, these things are going to be around for 50 to 100 years. I mean, you're absolutely right. You are envisioning a future. Um, and it, it's funny because they're static in a lot of ways, but they have to be so flexible and adaptive at the same time. So it's like you have to be able to anticipate who's going to be using it, what the climate's going to be like, um, you know, and, and it seems almost like an impossible task, but it's exciting at the same time. I think for the very, for those very reasons, I, I ask my kids too sometimes, you know, what, what do you think, what do you think I do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think your mom does? <laughs> like day to day? <laughs> um, and they, they, you know, have different, they rattle off different answers. Like you're saving the world, you're trying to save the environment, you're building green buildings, or, um, you're, um, you're an advocate, you're a feminist, you know, <laughs> they, oh, they those are great. various things, I think, depending on the time of day and, you know, um, how much, how much uh, time we have. <laughs> um, I think that what they, what all kids, you know, really want um, in a future, in a building or, you know, in a community and in parent is, is a sense of, of safety, of, um, support of, of hope. Um, I think that designers, architects, we have the ability to provide all those things through design. Um, and if they're designed sustainably, I think even more so, you know, I think it would be a beautiful thing if buildings could be designed in such a way that they actually give back to the environment in some way, you know, that they aren't simply using energy, but they're providing energy back, that they're not just using water for the occupants, but they're um, supplying water back to aquifers, that they're not just using building materials, but those building materials are maybe cleaning the air or um, can be decomposed and be made into something else. Um, I think that would be an, an amazing, um, an amazing achievement, um, for the industry as a whole and for society as a whole, if we could accomplish that. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about such big problems and issues that it's easy to get overwhelmed, but I think that, you know, it's, it, it sounds like there's been, and it seems to me that there's been a lot of progress, maybe not enough progress, but a lot of progress and a lot of change. Can you talk about, you know, over the course of your career, the types of changes that you've really seen? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I think, you know, specifically in California, um, we're really fortunate because uh, the status quo has been raised, you know, year upon year or every cycle, let's say, of the, the building code. Um, and so in some regards, it's pushed us as an industry to really um, up our game. So, um, you know, the energy code, for example, in California is so much more stringent than any of the other states um, that outperforming, you know, a baseline building is a much uh, harder thing to do um, than it is in other parts of the country. So I've witnessed sort of that evolution occur and I've seen sort of like this inertia um, right now, especially to try and surpass a baseline, you know, because it's hard for one thing. Um, it can be cost prohibitive for another thing. And people have sort of become comfortable with status quo because the status quo is so high. I think that we have to push the envelope continuously um, and not get comfortable with with being okay. You know, we have to be better than that. Now with honestly, um, potentially a new administration coming in that's going to be pushing more solid environmentally focused policies, I think we're going to be at a very interesting time where we'll see a lot more support, both, uh, you know, financially, um, and also um, just ideologically. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to have, you know, the opportunity to work with clients in such a way that they don't feel like their hands are tied. Um, they know that they'll have support from every level of their administration and they'll have support financially to push these different sustainable initiatives. So I think that that evolution is going to continue. And I hope um, I hope it's, it's um, a positive thing for, for the environment and for the AEC industry. In terms of water, um, we've seen, you know, so many things fluctuate over the last, you know, couple of decades and gone through a few droughts. Um, and psychologically, when we come out of a drought, it's almost like, phew, we got over that one, you know. Um, but there, it's in, inevitable that we're going to have um, cycles of droughts and they might get more extreme and they might last longer. So um, I see, you know, a lot of the AEC industry turning to water specialists to help better understand how we can sort of secure our future. Um, and I think that's a, a great thing too. I see a lot of tech coming into play more oh, and more. Yeah. Um, a lot of different tech industries are sort of taking on these, these bigger challenges of climate change and they um, have inroads in, in, in what we do. Um, for example, you know, you see um, Google coming into play when it comes with solar technology, water technology, um, and providing access to basic services for the disenfranchised um, and using um, design thinking to, to get there. I, I think that there's a really interesting um, uh, opportunity for the AEC industry to intersect with the tech industry to help a lot of these different ideas come to, to be. Mm -hmm. and to be honest, um, this pandemic um, has really thrown us all for a loop because in the AEC industry, you know, how do you begin to design places when you when you're not in them anymore? Right? <laughs> like we're yeah. all social distanced. So in a lot of ways, this pandemic is requiring the AEC industry to to just pivot and say, what can we provide? How can we use design thinking? to provide a new type of service to our clients and um, to society. And I really think that the answer is um, 
looking at climate change uh, and partnering with uh, folks in the tech industry um, to see how uh, the built environment can address climate change, how design thinking part um, by partnering with the tech industry can address climate change in a much more formidable way, in a much more um, um, meaningful way, and in a much faster pace at a greater scale. You know, it's not going to take us, um, you know, three years to design and build an application that the AEC industry then can use, let's say, to design more efficient buildings. Buildings take a much longer time than, let's say, developing an application could. And I think that we very much need to really look at those opportunities. And and those changes are all kind of unsettling in some ways, can be a little bit scary, but can be really amazing opportunities at the same time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I kind of, you know, wonder too, and I, I, I sort of hate talking about this because it's like, we don't, everything's so unpredictable right now. We don't know a lot, but like, um, you know, I've heard chatter uh, with a lot of people who are concerned with the housing shortage in terms of, well, can we adaptively reuse some of the commercial space to, um, you know, instead of having to build expensive new housing, just reuse what we have. And I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, but I like I have a hard time wrapping my head around. Well, we don't know what our society is going to look like <laughs> when we yeah. get out of this. That's so true. It, it is it is unpredictable, and it's almost like you you have to be so nimble um, and so comfortable with not knowing in order to make any sort of move. You also have to be okay with making that move and failing. You know, yeah. I think that's a very uncomfortable feeling for sure. But you know what? At this point in time, at this juncture, like I think it almost it's it's a requirement of survival. You know, yeah. You have to just try because you you won't progress otherwise. Um, and I think it's actually a really awesome conversation to have. You know, you're right. Like when it comes to housing, or when it even comes to classrooms, right on a campus, um, wouldn't it be kind of this sort of eye-opening conversation to have with a client to say, we could build you a new building, but you know what? We developed this application that can actually um, scan all of your buildings and it can actually figure out which spaces are being used. And we've we've ascertained that you're actually um, underusing several spaces and we don't need to build you a new building. We can just renovate these other spaces for you. It's not right. a very good business case for us, right? <laughs> right. But it's it's a new type of service, um, and it's um, an altruistic service, perhaps as well. But it's also about thinking about what we do in a different way, and I think that's that's required. I think too, um, you know, I, I often think back to this this one professor I had um, for a studio in grad school. Actually, uh, she told me, you know architects, we're not social workers. We're not here to save the world or, you know, um, eradicate poverty. We're here to design. And that never was okay with me. (laughs) I I, I was thinking, you know, I don't need to be, I'm not saying we need to be social workers to be architects, to be good architects. We just have to be human, right? (laughs) We just have to have a moral compass or a soul (laughs) to 
to want to do something right um, meaningful and, and something beyond yourself in architecture. And I think that that's this time, you know, question what you're doing, ask yourself what else you can do or do differently um, so that you make this place better. And it might mean scaling back what we do. It might mean degrowth. I mean, it might mean not making as much money as you had hoped, right? But it might mean that you're building up a future for other people. And I think that's that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that brings up, you know, this phrase that I heard a lot growing up, which was reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm-hmm. And um, we're really good as a American society on relying on recycling. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think what you touched on, too, is that as an architectural profession, um, it's not always in our best interest to say, hey, you can just reuse this or, hey, you can reduce the scope of work. Um, right. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's totally a different, it's a completely different way of thinking. Um, and, and yet it's so necessary. I mean, yeah. Do you need this? Do you need this building? We don't think so. Do you want a building to last for 50 years? then let's design it with materials that are going to last for uh, not 50 years, but like a hundred years, 200 years. Let's design it with materials that are safe and healthy for the environment so that when they decompose, you're not putting toxic waste into landfills. You know, we have to start thinking about these things in such a way that again is proactive, that is predictive (laughs) if possible. Uh And that is not at the end of the waste stream, you know, you're absolutely right. We have, you know, at home too, I'm sure you've noticed, there is so much recycling um, that occurs. There's, you probably need three recycling bins, right? And and my kids and I um, were having this, this talk the other day about why we have so much recycling every day. We have to take it out to the bins. And um, I, I asked them, you know, did we actually need all of this stuff? What if the manufacturers built it in such a way that it didn't, even need to be recycled? What if we just reused? What if we use more glass? What if we use less plastic? Um, What if we didn't buy as much as we think we need? You know, what if we grew things more in the vegetable garden? I think that there's, there's lots of really, um, you know, sort of basic conversations that we're having at home that we can apply to what we do at at work. Yeah. Um, well, before we run out of time, I also want to talk about the other facets of your life. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think it sounds like, you know, you're working toward a common goal in all of the areas of your life, but you're on the board of the, um, Designing Futures Foundation. You're very active with USGBC, um, LA and Inland Empire, um, and you're a parent of three kids. Like, I, how are you able to just like manage all of this? I mean, as, as you well know, it's, it's a juggling act, right? Like it's just how many things can I manage to, to do, um, pretty good and then <laughs> okay with not, not getting to the other things. I think, um, it's okay not to do it all and not to be all things to all people. Um, 
I think I've had, I've definitely become comfortable with that. And, and I want my kids to know that too, you know, that mama's not perfect and mama's not even going to try to even achieve perfection. It's not possible or healthy or, um, or, or good, you know, like just be okay with, with not doing it all. Um, I think that's the very first thing, um, that I've accepted. Um, and, uh, the other thing is that it's not just me. I'm, I'm so fortunate. I have a village, you know, I have, um, wonderful, um, parents and in-laws that help us. My parent, my grandparents, the grandparents of our family, um, sort of sew us all together. And, um, my husband and I, um, tag team, and to be honest, um, it's really sort of elevated the sense of responsibility in my two older kids. So they've taken on quite a bit as well to help out and to understand that this is, as you mentioned, unpredictable. And we all have to sort of be willing to, to be all hands on deck to help out. Um, and then, you know, the extra things that I do on the side with DFF, with Designing Futures Foundation, with USGBC, those are sort of... Um, passions of mine. I feel like those are necessary outlets for me to be able to take what I do professionally and then um, um, share it with the communities that I'm a part of. So I really um, enjoy the work that we're able to support and the work that we're able to provide um, to our communities through those two different nonprofits. Um, and I, I look forward to my work with them all the time. And at work, I work with lovely people who understand um, that what we do, it's it's a part of life. You know, I I've I've heard that uh, term or uh, that phrase rather, um, work life balance. And I always think it's kind of funny because work is part of life. It's not that you're balancing work and life. You know, it's all under this umbrella of life. And it's sort of our job to help navigate and figure out how to balance it all. Um, and like I said, some things are going to fall fall through. You know, it's it's okay. It's okay. And and that's how you that's how you grow. That's how you figure it out the next time, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, what can I ask you? What is Designing Futures Foundation like? What what do what does it do? Because I know. I do. I'm very familiar with USGBC, but I'm not as uh, familiar with DFF. Yeah. DFF is is a wonderful nonprofit. Um, I'm just one of of several board members um, on DFF and our executive board, um, executive director rather is um, Adrian Luce. Um, It's a nonprofit that was started by HMC back in 2009. And it, um, it seeks to improve the lives of our the communities that we work in um, through various avenues by um, basically supporting community projects that have to do with several focus areas. So one of them being environmental stewardship. Um, we also have disaster relief, education, and architecture. Um, this year, uh, our board actually met in light of everything that has happened, right? Um, to really take a hard look at what we're doing and evolve our mission statement so that it addresses um, the events that have occurred over the last really lifetime, but have really um, come to the forefront in this last year. And so we've really taken the initiative to um, craft each of our focus areas so that it's looking at, for example, when it comes to 
environmental stewardship and sustainability. It's looking at how we can support projects that ensure access to all uh, the entire spectrum of our society, not just those who can afford um, you know, architecture, but those who need architecture, sustainable architecture, those who need access to water, safe shelter, food, um, and, and clean energy. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what we, we support, um, through our funding. So, um, it's, it's a wonderful nonprofit. I'm, I'm delighted to be a part of it. Um, and the projects that we support are, they're beautiful. They're, they're asked, they're inspirational, you know, um, things such as, um, uh, let's see, there is uh, Alex Weber's um, project that she did where she collected 50,000 golf balls from the coast of California um, um, because she was scuba diving and she saw how much it was polluting her waters. And then she worked with a local artist to help develop into a sculpture. She worked with um, a scientist at Stanford to understand how the deg degradation of those golf balls was affecting the ecosystem. And so we supported her work. DFF supported her work. DFF also supported USGBC's initiatives, so different outreach programs, such as the McKinley Workshops. Um, actually, that was a collaborative through HMC, DFF, and USGBC. And the McKinley Workshops was a set of sustainability workshops that brought um, uh, part lab, part presentation to school districts, They where we um, provided workshops on energy, waste, and water, um, and helped them understand what each of those three, you know, facets mean. Um, we built solar cookers, um, built aquifers, um, we helped them take waste and make it into art. We helped them have conversations with another school in South America, um, and DFF supported all of that. So it's... Um, it does so many different wonderful um, things in terms of support for community projects. And uh, I I'm just really excited to be a part of it. Wow, that sounds amazing. It's really interesting to hear about all of those projects. You know, how does somebody apply to the foundation? It's a revolving application process. Um, so we're just starting our new fiscal year now. So they can just simply reach out on our website. I believe we have a link to DFF and Adrian is always checking all her emails. She's very active on social media. Uh, they can always reach out to any one of us, any one of the board members as well, and we'll help uh, sort of shepherd an application through the process. Cool. Well, I'll provide a link then uh, in the show notes to yeah. uh, DFF and to HMC and everything you're doing. Wonderful. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, Ira. Audrey, thank you. It was so nice to meet you. I really respect and love the work that you're doing. And I think it's just really cool how you're reaching out to so many people to just see how they work and share their stories. And I, I just really appreciate the time. And that's our show. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Ira's work and her career. I found it very inspiring and hope that during this pandemic, we all have the opportunity to check in about our whys and to make adjustments, however big or small, to keep us all true to our values. And if you know someone who you'd love to have featured on this show, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find me at xx-la.com or at xxlapodcast on social media. Thanks for listening.